Guardian Unlimited. Hello, assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamophonic, the podcast that puts the R into Ummah. Now, being a Muslim in Britain can make your head spin and no, it's not because you've been possessed by the devil. Last week, there were 15,648 stories mentioning the word Muslim and 5,202 stories carrying the word Islam. Contributing to this glut of coverage, the Muslim media mountain, if you will, was a two-day conference on Islam and Muslims in the world today, a publication from the Foreign Policy Centre on having faith in foreign policy, a Fabian Society pamphlet on a commonplace, and new anti-terror measures from the Home Office. Add to this an alleged plot to blow up JFK Airport, the 40th anniversary of the Six-Day War, Gordon Brown talking tough on terrorism, and a survey showing that a quarter of British Muslims think that MI5 stage 7-7, and you have the beginnings of an epidemic. I'm exhausted. In the studio are Guardian commentator and writer Jonathan Friedland and Lord Ahmed of Rotherham. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Um, Jonathan, what was your Muslim moment of the week? Well, there were quite a few. Um, I was in the uh, audience on the Islam and the World conference that Tony Blair addressed uh, at the beginning of the week um, and uh, was was in the group of people waiting for him to turn up. He was very, very, very late uh, at Lancaster House. And it was a whole lot of, I thought, interestingly, international mm. Muslim dignitaries. And I wondered a bit, there were people here from, from, from here, from Britain, but I wondered a bit if uh, Tony Blair's calculation was that he would get a slightly more sympathetic hearing if there to, weren't, weren't any Brits there. Well, or, you know, distinguished squal- scholars from far away rather than the actual community from here. But um, it was also noticeable to, that he was in a slightly lower key register than he's done before. He wasn't going for the full-on sort of civilization in peril stuff. He was try- I wondered if he's learned a little lesson that that, in a way, doesn't play that well. Lord Ahmed? Because it was a legacy speech, it had to be like that, that he wanted to retire as the caliphate of the Muslim community. And he wanted to sound as though that he's um, saying the right things. Um, But I think the important thing is that um, there were quite a lot of misinformation about this conference. Cambridge University was saying it was their conference. Actually, with all the letters that went out to the participants, it said Downing Street Conference replied to Foreign Office, funded by the Communities Department. And the Cambridge University themselves were saying, we're not responsible for uh, inviting people. And on Radio 4, uh, they said, no, we funded it, we organised it, and we are responsible. So uh, quite a lot of confusion. Well, the conference that got everyone talking last week was, of course, the Islam and Muslims in the World Today conference. It had an all-star lineup with the Prince of Wales, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Ruth Kelly, a gaggle of grand muftis, and, of course, Tony Blair, who took time off from his farewell tour to everybody. Um, it's probably going to be his last public gesture towards Muslims, so let's hear what he had to say for himself. The reason for this conference is to allow the many dimensions of Islam to speak about themselves in a more considered, more profound way than the short bursts of news coverage normally permit. When I've met groups of Muslims, especially younger ones, and incidentally in any part of Britain, of course the normal issues about foreign policy arise. But actually the predominant complaint is about how they believe that their true faith is constantly hijacked and subverted 
by small and representative groups who get disproportionately large amounts of publicity. It is the way of the modern media that's what counts as impact. Those willing to come on television and articulate extreme and violent views make so much more impact than those who use the still small voice of reason and moderation. So the principal purpose of this conference, therefore, is to let the authentic voices of Islam in their various schools and manifestations speak for themselves. Tony Blair also said that more money would be provided for Islamic studies in universities and he tried again to persuade us that the war on terror was not a war on Islam. Lord Ahmed, were you convinced by what he was saying? Uh, well, I still need a lot of convincing uh, because one, uh, that he talked about authentic voices mm. and uh, what is an authentic voice? Is it authentic voice that he thinks is an authentic voice that agrees with him mm. and is from a, a Sufi uh, sect and from a one, one particular small sect that would only agree with whatever he's saying rather than the majority who would disagree with the foreign policy as well as the way this war on terror and the effects of war on terror and the way the Muslim communities have been isolated and the way that Britain and the United States has been seen as defying the United Nations and defying the international community like for instance in south of Lebanon we were the only two countries in the world that supported Israel and nobody else did uh, when they were continuously bombing and we weren't calling for uh, the unconditional ceasefire so people know uh, the realities and I think that it would have been much better if Tony Blair had invited people who also disagreed with him rather than people who would just clap for various cultural reasons and also those because they want to have breakfast with him as well. Well, after the event was over, I grabbed a few minutes with David Ford. He's the director of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme, which organised the event. And I asked him how the event had gone. Well, I think the, the highlights were in both public and more private. I mean, there were working groups where we got down to really hard work on particular issues like human rights and gender and the faith and the state and education and leadership sort of issues. And at the end, there were reports from the rapporteurs of those groups. The other highlight was obviously the public dimension of it. You know, we had Tony Blair there, we had Gordon Brown came and gave a speech. Was there any consensus on the ways forward for some of the bigger issues like common values, engagement and representation? Now that's a more difficult one because we weren't taking votes, we weren't, you know, there was a, a lot of argument in the conference as you would imagine, but on the other hand there was some, uh, th there was a, a reasonable deal of consensus that there are deep resources within Islam for being fully committed citizens of Western countries, Western democracies. You know, one of the outcomes of the, of the conference, it seems to me, was just how deeply Muslims want to contribute to our societies, how much they need to be listened to, and how constructive they can be on a whole range of issues, on, you know, including issues that they're not normally associated with in, in, in that regard, like gender issues and so forth. What do such events achieve in the long term? I've been to loads of conferences about Islam and identity and nothing's really changed. Well, I was struck after this conference by how 
seriously the issues were being taken and also by the level of action that was being taken. I mean, the education report was a very interesting one, the one on Islam and universities, you know, because the minister announced giving, you know, a considerable amount of money to this and making it a priority subject in British universities. And that sort of concrete action, I think, made people feel that there was a new atmosphere and that Islam was genuinely in the public sphere, was being taken seriously, was being listened to. This was only a day and a half, so you can't express the, expect the earth, but uh, there was a real buzz about the conference and the way in which people related to each other and the way in which they said thank you afterwards was very moving. Hot on the heels of that conference was another conference. A think tank called the Foreign Policy Centre launched a publication called Having Faith in Foreign Policy, looking at the relationship between faith and foreign policy. One of the authors of the report, Sonny Hundle, told me more. Well, my article was based on how Sikhs and Hindus in the UK have been affected by the war on terror. And it says the war on terror is not just an issue for Muslims. And it's actually looking at how the politics around the war on terror, community politics in the UK, has brought all these Hindu and Sikh so-called community leaders to the forefront, how they've tried to exploit the war on terror as, as a way to further their own career. And also looking at how actually th- there's been a, more of a schism within the, the, the sort of the broader Asian community, I guess you could call it, between, you know, more tension between Hindus and Sikhs and Muslims and how that's been used by religious fundamentalists on all sides since the war on terror. There were loads of events last week looking at Muslims and identity and representation and I don't know what else. Why was this event significant, the Foreign Policy Centre one? We know increasingly that faith plays a greater role in foreign politics, you know, events around the world. So what I wanted to do was sort of plug the gap and say that we have an intelligence, um, a lack of intelligence and understanding of what goes on in faith and how that relates to foreign policy. So this was looking at how it affects events uh, internationally and how it affects events in the UK. Does the government have the right to tell people who have a faith how to lead their lives? I mean, it's an interesting question. I think that there was there is a lot of debate online and government circles about where does the line lie between the government and and religion. On the one hand, we have secularism, which says the government should not interfere in religion. There should be a complete separation between the two. But then there's people who are very religious and say, no, I want my faith to play a part in uh, my decisions in public life. So what then the government do- then is forced to do is then intervene and say, well, okay, we if the, if religion is going to play a part in in our policy, then we have to regulate it because that's what the government does. So I think we're sort of all confused, and and I I actually think I, there's a lot of confusion within Muslim circles about secularism, which is then equated to atheism you know, confusion about what should the government do. I mean, there was this recent thing about Tony Blair investing one million to pay imams. The fact is, actually, most Muslims say that the government should fund more British-born imams. Then when the government does put the money, everyone says, oh, no, this is going to you know, create all sorts of trouble. So it, there, there, there is this line that no one is really talking about. No one really knows where it lies. Lord Ahmed, what do you make of Sonny's point that the war on terror has had an impact on other minority communities? I think he's absolutely right. Uh, the war on terror um, has an effect on 
the Hindu and Sikh communities. Uh, sometimes people are confused because they don't know the difference between uh, the Sikhs and Osama bin Laden, for instance, with beard and the turban. Uh, but also from colour, I think Hindus also have suffered as well. But then the Muslim community has suffered greatest and um, all of us have suffered. I think that there is a, a way out because um, people um, have been saying a lot about winning hearts and minds, but nobody has actually done anything about it. They've been saying this money that was announced, one million pounds for all the British universities. I mean, it's pittance. I mean, you know, if you're really going to be serious about having a British trained imams, then you need to fund those universities for the courses. You can't just, one million pounds is not going to provide training for uh, 2,000 imams uh, in various parts of the country. This is just for cheap headlines. I, I'm all for training imams. I'm all for creating a British environment for the Muslims because this is their country, this is where they want to remain, and this is where they want to have their own imams who are trained, who understand the culture, who understand the... Because they, there is no contradiction as far as religion is concerned in terms of beliefs because this is a very similar religion, continuation of religion of Christianity and Judaism. So the um, uh, uh, religious point of view, there isn't much uh, difference. But on t in terms of the culture that most of the imams have brought from Indian subcontinent and North Africa needs to change. And I think you need resources and you need political decisions because what government has been uh, worried about is that they don't want to be seen to be giving money to a particular uh, community because then the others will say, so well, give us some money as well. Jonathan, everyone's talking about the relationship between faith and foreign policy except the government. So what can we do to engage the government on this issue? Well, first of all, in a way, I think it's slightly mistaken to call it faith. I mean, I think that is a misunderstanding. Islam. No, I think it's, you know, it's really about ethnic communities that do relate and identify with uh, their, you know, fellows around the world. And that's just a real dimension of the sort of diasporic element of foreign policy. So that, you know, if you're talking about the Middle East, one of the problems for that that makes it even more complicated is Jews around the world identify with Israelis and uh, Muslims around the world and others, actually, uh, will identify with with Arabs. And so therefore, you have a kind of thing which is not quite captured by the word faith. It's not as if it's just a matter of a few doctrinal principles. It's rather ethnic solidarity that's going on. So I agree with you. It is um, an odd one that you have our outgoing prime minister, seemingly the last person left in the world who doesn't believe there is some kind of connection uh, and who in continues to insist that, for example, uh, grievance about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan has nothing to do with the surge in uh, terrorism around the world. Obviously, they're connected. Uh, and what we just have to hope is that the incoming team, Gordon Brown and the others, and I didn't hear Gordon Brown's speech to that conference uh, last week, and it would have been very interesting to have heard it, but to uh, hope that he will say, see that it's not some huge concession to just mm. admit that obviously, not that necessarily this justifies what Bin Laden and the others are calling for, simply that it has helped them win recruits. That's all you're saying. You're not um, saying this else, uh, that an explanation in any way is a justification. You're not even going as far as an explanation. You're just saying that if there is this degree of anger and, uh, and uh, an inflammation around the world, then 
people from those sort of jihadist movements are going to be able to feed off that and exploit it. And therefore, you just want to reduce the ability of this recruiting sergeant to operate. That's the connection. And I just don't think it's rocket science to see it. Uh, faith has played an important part in foreign policy, because according to some non- Sunday newspapers, uh, Tony Blair is thinking of becoming a deacon for the uh, for, for the church. And also, um, we know that the famous prayers of Tony Blair and George W. Bush in the White House. So they have played some part. Although he denied that. Didn't oh, he? Yeah. But mind you, he didn't do a real denial. You're right. He sort of just did a mocking expression. Yes. Is this yes. where he was asked if he prayed with George Bush? That's right. That's Jeremy it. Paxton yeah. said, have you prayed together? And he, <laughs> no, actually, yes, he did. He said, he no, did. we don't pray together. We don't pray together. But he did it in that way that you thought he's left a little wiggle room. <laughs> but officially, it's denied that they've prayed together. But, uh, but I take your point. On to our next event at the Fabian Society, which published a pamphlet called A Common Place. Here's co-author Ruth Kelly, Communities and Local Government Secretary. The core question that we're trying to answer here is how do we maintain our traditional tolerance that we have as a country um, at a time of increasing diversity and perhaps increasing risks while maintaining and indeed developing a shared sense of uh, belonging. And the core argument is basically twofold. It's two distinct pieces. First, that developing that sense of shared identity is increasingly important and perhaps more important today than it has been in the past. And the the second part of the argument is to say that while it's increasingly important, there are many reasons why one might think that it's increasingly difficult today and more difficult than it has been in the past. Ruth Kelly and Immigration Minister Liam Byrne argued that we need to develop a more overt but inclusive sense of citizenship in order to counter Britain's insecurity over their identity. And one of their proposals was a new National Day for Britain. Jonathan, you've written about this um, quite a bit recently. Um, The citizenship debate has been rumbling on for ages. What's the government's ideal scenario? If they could tell people exactly what to do. What would happen? They're, they're really keen and, and they're quite thoughtful that people value citizenship more. They're, one of their worries is that at the moment it doesn't mean much to people. People who are born with it and, uh, and have it automatically don't seem to value it. But also there's a mess, they say, around newcomers who can sort of pick it up at different stages, different routes, depending on whether, which kind of work permit you've come in on. And the results, there's so many benefits and things you can get without being a citizen. Their worry is that actually it's as if it's, in Liam Byrne said it to me, that it's as if it's just something downloadable off the internet you know just not a big deal they then worry in turn that that means people's attachment to the country is less than it should be and it goes back to what we were saying earlier that they worried that that is something that the extremists are able to play off one of the conclusions they've drawn is that the people for example behind the july the 7th bomb bombings though british born didn't feel much attachment uh, 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 or much importance to being british so and if they had they goes the logic they wouldn't have felt able to kill their fellow British citizens so that's the logical sequence therefore they say let's build up people's sense of attachment to being British and to and feel that citizenship is something really worth having and I think they're very influenced here by America and by those ceremonies that uh, new immigrants have which we now have here too but in in those events which somehow big up the importance of being a citizen that's what they want to do and they've this document a commonplace is full of different ideas essentially aimed at that destination. Lord Ahmed, the pamphlet also called for support for Muslim communities in defining a modern sense of British Islam, emphasising citizenship and loyalty to Britain as well as one's own faith. What on earth does that mean? Well, first of all, I don't have any problem with being loyal 
to Britain and uh, as a British citizen, I always say, and most of us, actually, uh, the last uh, Gallup poll that was done uh, on uh, citizenship, more people, more Muslims felt British than the white indigenous. But, you know, what will happen to those nationalists? For instance, there's a Muslim nationalist that is elected in the Scottish Parliament. And there's a Muslim nationalist in Welsh Assembly. Now, I was talking to somebody in Scotland and they said that neither the Muslims in Glasgow nor the uh, Scottish uh, Glaswegians feel that they're British. They are Scottish. And why should anybody force them to feel that they should be British now because I like Gordon, that the Gordon's going to be prime minister? Is it just, are we reacting because there's a, there possibly could be a reaction from the English communities that here we have a foreigner who's going to come and uh, govern the United Kingdom. That's number one. I don't personally, I don't have a problem uh, with uh, feeling British and, you know, having those British values. Well, but I do. But of, I do. What's a modern sense of British Islam? Does that mean well, chips? Bri- well, I, I, well, Where uh, you're not too Muslim or you're not threatening to well, blow people well, up. Is prob- that what it comes down to? Probably to eat fish and chips and mushy peas. I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure because I, I, I think this is for headlines, uh, quite frankly, because Islam is one religion. Um, maybe I think there are people who are trying to say, uh, well, uh, multiculturalism has a lot of questions. Now people should wear uh, jeans and T-shirt and rather than, you know, shalwar kameez and a turban. I don't know. Uh, but I don't understand when people say British Islam, but whether it, I mean, I, I do think that Islam is like a beautiful uh, river that when it flows through different countries, it picks up the color of the stones that it flows over. So obviously the culture is also picked up as well. And I don't see anything wrong with us having um, our own values and our own set of principles and and also ways of sort of integrating into British society. There's no problem with that. But I think that if the state starts to tell us how we should behave as Muslims, that's when you will get a reaction. That's the difficulty with this whole thing. It's always very hard to organise from the top down. It's the sort of thing that just should happen organically. I think what they want, the ministers proposing this, by that phrase British Islam, is the idea that British Muslims will feel as much allegiance to Britain and their fellow citizens mm. as they do to the worldwide sort of ummah and that they, you feel a member of both. But you know, and that's what they're going for. This worldwide ummah is a very small percentage, very small. There's never been as ummah as such. You know, there's been not been an Islamic rule as such. Uh, there's a very small minority of young people, like we used to have the uh, socialist, uh, hardcore uh, you know, kind of uh, militants in the old days. Now we have them in within the Muslim community, but that's only because there's politics to be played there, and that's what gives them the strength. Jazakallah to my studio guests, Jonathan Friedland and Lord Nazir Ahmed. That was Islamophonic. It was produced by Francesca Panetta and presented by me, Riaz Atbat. Until next week, walaikum assalam. Guardian Unlimited.